So the reading is Isaiah chapter 35, and it's on page 719 of the Pew Bibles. Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool the thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there and it will be called the way of holiness the unclean will not journey on it it will be for those who walk in that way wicked fools will not go about on it no lion will be there nor will any ferocious beast get up on it they will not be found there but only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. And uh, it's a delightful poem And uh, I am going to begin with the reference to the highway of holiness on it. Tonight, my experience of the highway was anything but holy, and I apologise for giving Nick um, some surprises and doubts as to whether the preacher would arrive. I fear that I probably added to its unholy aspect as I came along the M3. But uh, the contrast is people like us meeting as we do and being part together of that highway of holiness and there's place for all of us on it. So with that thought in mind, let's pray and then let's look a bit more at this passage from Isaiah. Father, help us to grasp that this was written in an amazing context of oppression, and fear, and possible destruction. Help us to wonder that the prophet could even have caught this vision of your purposes for the people then, and us today, and those who trust you across the ages. Speak to us, we pray, as we come back to this prophecy. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great contemporary saints 
Alec Matia, who, as I uh, imagine, must be nearing his 90s, he's still alive and he still writes, produced a magnificent commentary some years ago on Isaiah. And uh, he goes into raptures about this chapter, and I want to quote him. He says, no diagram, and I would add no translation, can possibly do justice to the subtlety of composition of this truly delightful poem. Now, I wonder what your reaction to poetry is. It's always interesting. In South America, it was about asking people, did they like or did they hate tango music? And about half the people in Buenos Aires uh, loved it, where it, of course, originated, and about the other half hated it. And I suspect there's a similar divide amongst many groups of people about our attitude to poetry. I won't put it to the test this evening, except to say that, be it good or not so good, every song we sing, every hymn we sing, is, of course, essentially a poem set to music. So we're much more saturated in the world of poetry than we realise. And what registers, if you look beyond the immediate chapter we're looking at, chapter 35, is that poetry can be written by people in the most incredibly difficult situations. So here is what Alec Matir has described as a truly delightful poem. And of course it doesn't come across as we would expect that well in translation as a poem. But Graham, thank you. You captured in the way you read it something of its poetic beauty. Now there was a time when I helped people analyse poetry. I'm not particularly into that this evening, but it's pretty obvious that the chapter divides into three parts. You've got verses 1 and 2, which if you skip over 3 and 4, somehow links to verses 5 to the end of the chapter. And these verses describe a place that is a desert and wilderness, being transformed and made safe, and having through it a highway which is utterly different from any highway or motorway that you and I might be able to imagine. Cast your minds back to the last time you were on a motorway or highway here in England. It may well have been, as was my experience, quite recent. It's not a place of safety. The highway of holiness is. It's not a place of peace and tranquility. The highway of holiness is. And most of our highways and motorways are not a place where anyone is really looking after anyone except themselves. But on the highway of holiness, that's one of its characteristics, that we look after one another. 
had my knowledge of technology risen to it and uh, those who are meeting afterwards may like to try this on their iPads or iPhones, I would have Googled in a place called Rio Verde in Paraguay, which was the centre of the Anglican work amongst indigenous peoples in that part of the country. And the road went straight through it and it was built up because it's also an area <coughs> that at certain times is subject to flooding. But what you would notice about it is that for the most part it's dead straight. That's a characteristic of lots of highways and motorways in South America. And in many areas it is raised up because when the floods do come, which they do on a predictable six to seven year cycle, you better watch out because the only place of safety then is that highway. So we can get glimpses of what it is for a highway to be a place of safety even here in our society on earth. But between the beauty of the descriptions in verses 1 and 2 and from chapter 5 onwards and this glorious focus on the highway, the way of holiness, come verses 3 and 4. And it's essentially on those two verses that I want to focus this evening because I believe they're the key to understanding the remarkable content that they're surrounded by in Isaiah chapter 35. They're translated by Eugene Peterson in his um, contemporary version of scripture in these words. Energize the limp hands, strengthen the rubbery knees, Tell fearful souls, courage, take heart. God is here, right here, on his way to put things right and redress all wrongs. He's on his way. He'll save you. And these are the words I think we need to begin with because they take us straight back into the days when Isaiah wrote this prophetic poem. Now you'll know that the, uh, beyond the complexity of the prophecy, the prophet Isaiah, in all its many shapes and forms as it develops, is a picture the prophet is given of the present, the realities of the day in which they lived, the consequences for good of trusting God in the short term, in terms of their immediate future, but always beyond that, a vision of life as it will be one day by the grace of God in a new heavens, heaven and a new earth. So you've got these different strands coming together throughout the whole of the book, but why should he, at this particular point, be exhorting everyone who would hear him to strengthen, strengthen feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, 
and say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Well, the situation is we're aware, as we read and study Isaiah, is that the kingdom of Judah, where Isaiah is speaking, is constantly, one way or another, under threat. And Isaiah the prophet and King Hezekiah, who's a kind of wobbly believer who goes backwards and forwards in trusting in the political and military power, not only of Judah but of powerful neighbours, is listening but not entirely convinced. And all the people in the city of Jerusalem are listening too, but probably their major fear is that they may well be facing imminent destruction at the hands of a powerful and all-conquering superpower. I think it's Clive preaching next week, so I must be careful not to preach his sermon for him. But in chapter 36, at the very beginning, we get a glimpse of that horrific context that they faced. It begins in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Now, at a very practical level, we need to realise that when we think about cities, we think of cities like London, New York, Johannesburg, anything bigger than a million, two million, five million. But mega cities didn't exist in those days. I regularly visit, visited a city, so-called, that only had one set of traffic lights. But it was a city by local standards. So what we have to picture are, no, are numbers of what we might now call fortified towns, <coughs> the smallest of which might be very similar to some of the hilltop forts that we've got in this region and date back, as we know, quite a few centuries. But the point is this, they'd all been captured by Sennacherib and his powerful army. And one of the most magnificently fortified of the lot was the city of Lachish and uh, he'd captured that too. And that wasn't so far. It was only about, I think, 40 kilometres from Jerusalem. And the fact that Lachish had fallen, for it had amazing fortifications, would spell fear into the hearts of the people in Jerusalem. Now, we know a lot about Lachish not least of all because Sennacherib conquered it. And when he got back home, in his palaces, he built friezes. He sculptured, or had people sculptor, friezes of the conquest of Lachish. And some of you may know that you can see some of that even today, and you don't have to go to the Far East, 
you just have to go to the British Museum, and there they are displayed. And the area around Lakish is in fact one of the most heavily, whatever the verb is, archaeologized areas of Palestine and Israel. So even Lakish has fallen to Sennacherib. What hope could Hezekiah and Jerusalem have of standing up to such an intimidating power? That's the question. Everywhere else, the all-conquering Assyrian army has vanquished. Why should they think it will be any different for Jerusalem? Now, as I was thinking about this, um, I, I posed the question, which I can't really answer, how would I respond if I were living in one of the places where Christians are really going through it at this time? Some of you may be familiar with the work of Open Doors. It's one of the organisations which uh, has worked over the years most with per persecuted Christians. And this is a map they produce. They produce one every year and have done so for a number of years of where the toughest places in the world are to be a Christian. And the black bits, which are North Korea, uh, Iraq and Somalia uh, are the hardest places of all. And then there's a long list down the side there. Um, I think it's a very helpful map, as is the guide to global persecution that they provide to go with it, which does a sort of day-by-day -day guide to praying for Christians who are undergoing persecution. But I don't know how really we can face that kind of physical threat because that was very similar to what the people of Jerusalem were facing when Isaiah wrote this prophetic poem. How would we stand up to an army surrounding everything we held dear? Of course, there are other kinds of persecution and uh, for the first time ever in World Watch, a couple of South American countries have been included, and the way it comes in there is through the sheer corruption of governments and the military. And yes, I have seen something of the, the effects of that, but that's not quite the same as what we're facing in Isaiah 35. What hope could Hezekiah and Jerusalem have of standing up to that intimidating power? But you see, Isaiah the prophet tells them to do exactly that. Strengthen the feeble knees, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. So as I looked at those verses and thought about them, 
what for me emerged was to say something about the nature of the faith which the prophet Isaiah was expecting both of himself and Hezekiah and the people at that point in their history. So here's my first observation. Then and now, in each new challenge God's people face, faith needs to be strengthened. <coughs> if you like to, you could turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 5 to 9. And the point is that in these earlier chapters, and they represent going back a bit in history, although it's only recent history, we see that they'd faced threat from their neighbours before. And uh, you've got it, as it were, from verse 3 onwards. And Isaiah has to remind the folk around him, and Hezekiah in particular, that the surrounding neighbours, the neighbouring nations, who are not as big as Assyria, are threats, yes, but they're not real. Verse 7, it will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. And then these words, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. In many ways, I think that's a key verse for the whole of the book of the prophet Isaiah. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. But the problem is this, the years had passed. Those particular threats didn't materialise. And in the, the chapters immediately preceding chapter 35, um, Isaiah spells out what had happened, a new generation had grown up that had actually not experienced wise leadership. The political leadership, and you can read about this in chapters 28 and chapter 30, had led them astray. But it was also a period from those earlier threats to the present day for them in chapter 35 where the people have become spiritually indifferent. And you can read about that in chapter 29 and chapters 31 and 32. And there were even those people in Jerusalem, and you can read about this in chapter 29 and chapters 33 and 34. There were even those people who thought they could do without God. 
years of unwise political leadership, years when people had become spiritually ignorant, and years when people thought they could do without God. Now, you may well sense, as I say that, the parallels with the Western world today. On the other hand, if you're young, you can only take for granted and know what you've personally experienced. But for many of us who are older, (coughs) the words of Isaiah have huge relevance to the contemporary Western world. For we have seen often unwise leadership. We have seen a prevalent ignorance of biblical truth. And we have seen many in leadership who think they can do without God. (coughs) So come with me to the second observation I want to make. Faith in God, therefore, needs to be reaffirmed and even rediscovered for each and every generation. We can't live as Christians on past glories. Let me, if I may, just give two or three illustrations of that. It's not yet on the bookstall, it will be. Ed Shaw's book, The Plausibility Problem, in fact, is a book on, (coughs) pardon me, on discipleship, but it's written from a particular perspective. (coughs) Pardon me as I cough my way through this cold. And one of the things he establishes in this book is that many of the things we know the Bible teaches, we no longer think are plausible in the 21st century. That's what the Bible says, yes. But we can't really believe that nowadays, can we? And he has a number of what he terms missteps. And the very last one, he terms the misstep on suffering. Suffering is to be avoided. Um, And he makes this comment amongst many others. Our contemporary Christian lives, obviously he's talking about the West, our contemporary Christian lives of comfort are not the Jesus way. The way of Jesus is the way of suffering until we can talk of significant ways in which we have denied ourselves in following Jesus, we should be wary of describing ourselves as his followers. Self-sacrifice has got to be the mark of following the one who sacrificed all that he had for us. It certainly used to be. And every chapter in that book is, I believe, equally challenging on how we live as disciples of Jesus Christ in a suffering, denying, simply happiness-seeking, in the personal sense, age.
another book which came out two or three years back by Andrew Wilson, If God, Then What, has a fascinating chapter called The Redemption of London. It makes a, an amazing read. And he begins by reminding us that one of the most sung, loved and quoted songs of the 20th century was Imagine by John Lennon. And he gives a whole lot of background information about that. And then he concludes with this comment, I for one am not satisfied with any of these solutions. My problem with John Lennon's dream world is partly that it's already been tried and it didn't work, but mostly that it doesn't reckon with the evil inside people. And he goes on to say, I could say similar things about the secular democracy dream world, which we're trying right now. Although it's better than lots of alternatives, it doesn't seem to be stomping out evil that well. Now the challenge for all of us, and particularly for younger men and women, is this. How do we reaffirm, even rediscover our faith in this generation, which has a real plausibility problem about truth and doesn't really face the reality of sin? He talks, does Andrew Wilson, about the evil inside people and Jesus did exactly the same. We won't read it now, but look up Mark chapter 7, verse 20, where he spells it out very clearly. Another take on the contemporary scene is by a North American professor of ethics. Just imagine a North American professor of ethics who didn't believe there was any difference between right and wrong. And in fact, he did his doctoral thesis. His name is Budzieszewski. I imagine that's of Polish extraction. And uh, he did his doctorate, we're told, forcibly arguing that we make our own rules for right and wrong, establishing our own moral structures. And I quote him, that is how I ended up doing a doctoral dissertation to prove that we make up the difference between good and evil and that we aren't responsible for what we do. I remember now that I even taught these things to students. Now that's sin. And he adds, it was also agony. You see, the point that Isaiah was stressing in those verses 3 and 4, and the, the point I'm trying to stress too in our contemporary situation, is that the evil, the threat, isn't just out there, external. It's within us. And how real is our awareness in the sin, of the sin in our own lives that holds us back in our discipleship. 
and how real is the understanding that evil within the life of a church can destroy our fellowship and certainly make it hard for us to walk in the way of holiness. So here's my third observation. Faith in God is about being rescued both from the evil within as well as the evil around us. The enemy is out there. And in many ways, that's what these books and that's what these maps remind us. But the enemy is also within. Both have to be dealt with. So here's my fourth observation as I look at these verses. God, who is both love and justice, rescues us. Say to those with fearful hearts, says the prophet Isaiah, be strong, do not fear, your God will come he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Now that should be terrifically reassuring. But Hezekiah took a lot of persuading that it really was important to put his trust in God. What does that mean, knowing that God is both love and justice and he will rescue us? Well, for some of us it means opening our Bibles again and taking seriously that God is not just love, but God is also light. That in the cross of Christ we see not only the love of God in action, but the justice of God in action and that those we have primarily sinned against are not just our neighbours, but God himself. And he's angry with us. And his is a righteous, holy, totally justifiable anger because we've chosen to live our way and not his. You see, the contemporary world, certainly in the West, uh, likes just the phrase, God is love. Ironically, in South America, amongst the poor and the underprivileged and the marginalised, they liked, God is just. One day, our injustices will be addressed. That's what sustained them. But they were no more right than we are. It is the balance of God's love and justice that we rediscover as we read our Bibles carefully. For he it is who purifies us, who makes us clean, and that matters. So to my final observation, God stands with us and walks with us, both here in time and for all eternity. Remember the, land, the landscape, the desert and the parched land will be glad, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom, 
like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. Through that landscape, which is itself being transformed and being renewed, runs a road, a highway as we've seen, like no other. And you and I are being invited to walk together in that place of safety. Oh yes, says Isaiah, it's a place exclusively for God's redeemed and rescued people. Nothing evil or harmful can get up onto it. But there's even room on it in the better translation of verse 8, the second part. There's even room on it, and I quote from the English Standard Version, version for holy people, believers, even if they f- are fools who could easily go astray. So verse 8, the final part, can read, even if they even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Some of us are prone to wandering off the highway, but you'll be kept safe on the highway, not just by God, but by your fellow believers. Because you see, it's a place where no one is alone. It's a place where we travel together. And it is, of course, a picture of the church, a picture of the church as it should be. Whatever our external circumstances, gladness and joy overtake us, says Isaiah in the last, ver- last part of his poem. It's a place where we know each other and we're glad to know each other Although here on earth the sorrow and sighing will never completely disappear, this we know. But we also know that we can make of our local church something more like that highway pictured in Isaiah's poem. And when that's our aim and ambition, true faith in the church amongst all of us, as well as personal faith, will grow. So let's pray. Let's picture, if we can, the wonder of a local church as being part of streams of people travelling along across the generations throughout the world on the highway of holiness, a place of safety where no one is alone, where we support one another and even the weaker are strengthened by those who are stronger. Father, we pray that more and more gladness and joy may overtake us as we contemplate this wonderful vision. But help us not only to look to the future, 
but also in the present, to have our faith renewed as we face each new challenge. And we know that your grace is sufficient to renew us and strengthen our feeble knees every bit as much as you strengthened the faith of those who faced such horror in those days in Jerusalem. You delivered them, deliver us as we trust in you. Amen.